Two and a Half Admins, episode 26. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got yet another blog post to plug, Alan. Yes. Continuing our series about the history of FreeBSD, and we have uh, one now on the history of jails and basically the beginning of containers. So especially if you're bought into this wave of stuff about containers, it's very interesting to see about where it came from originally. Yeah, you're the hipsters when it comes to containers, eh? Something like that. (laughs) I mean, honestly, my first introduction to virtual private servers was not VMs, it was FreeBSD jails. Yeah, before hardware virtualization, it was really the only option. Like every other kind of VPS was just terribly slow. All right, well, let's do some news then. The first one is changes to LastPass free, or in other words, how LastPass died. I got an anonymous tip this morning about this. Uh, A LastPass user DM'd me on Twitter and was like, you know, hey, have you seen this? Uh, LastPass is is basically, you know, killing their free service. And uh, they're not actually killing it technically, but what they're doing is almost worse. They're... uh, They're making it so that as of March 16th, you have the choice, if you're a LastPass free user, of accessing your passwords either from a computer or from mobile, but not both. Uh, You got to pick one. If you want to be able to use your passwords and log into websites on either your computer or your phone, you're going to have to pony up 27 bucks a year for a premium account. That's not very much, is it, really? Not really, but at the same time, there are other alternatives and... You know, it's an interesting way to decide. It's like you can still use multiple devices, just they all have to be desktops or laptops, or they all have to be phones, tablets, and watches. You can use seven computers, but you can't use one computer and one phone. Yeah. I mean, honestly, what it kind of comes down to is uh, effectively, you, you basically have to either be a kid or homeless for the free to work for you. I don't know anybody who uses a computer who isn't also going to need to be able to access their passwords, you know, from a phone. So this really kind of only works for people who never use anything but a phone to begin with. Most of my stuff on my phone, I don't have to log into very often. And I guess I have a couple of things that I do have to log into frequently on my phone set up to use the fingerprint thingy. I think that makes you a pretty unusual password manager user, though. Yes, I do not use my phone for very many things. If I need something, I would go to a computer. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, neither you nor I are the typical password manager user, Alan. Um, In my experience, most of the folks are in the market for something like LastPass or 1Password or any of those. You know, the way they're using it, they have no idea what the passwords are to any of their services. They never type anything in. It's all, you know, randomly generated strings of trash that's automatically filled by a plugin for their password manager in the browser. So when they lose access to that, you know, on their mobile phone, that basically just means they can no longer browse the web on a phone. Well, I put it to you that it's not common for people to use password managers, and it's much more common for them to have Chrome generate them a password and use Chrome's built-in password manager that syncs across all devices. So this isn't really going to bother most normal people because normal people don't use an external password manager. To a degree, I I agree with you there, Joe. Um, I think what you're missing there, you know, it's kind of like when we talk about the year of Linux on the desktop, right? You know, everybody says, you know, oh, you've got to be this hideously advanced user, you know, to be a Linux desktop person. And I think all three of us know that's absolutely not the case. Very, very basic users generally have no problem switching from Windows to Mac or Linux at all. The folks who have the problem are the power users. 
And I think that's kind of, you know, where you really find the the big market for password managers like LastPass or one password or, you know, whatever. It's these folks that like they've they've got the basic idea that, you know, hey, I need to take my security more seriously, but they haven't, you know, quite gotten to the point where like, for instance, I am with using Diceware passphrases that, you know, I store in KeePass just in case I forget them. And I don't want browser plugins because I want more separation. But there are there are tons of people out there of all kinds of skill levels that are absolutely using LastPass. I mean, I run into them in my professional consulting experience nonstop. Well, and it's very handy to have one tool that works across four different operating systems to manage your passwords. <laughs> because, yeah, your password should be long random strings that you don't actually know. Because otherwise, one of them gets compromised and you reused it too much. Your human brain just can't have that many passwords in it. And so you need some kind of system or tool. And something like this is generally better. I will say again, Alan, speak for your own human brain, because mine doesn't have any problem with uh, around 100 to 150 Diceware style passphrases at a time. Once you hit that number, eventually the least used will kind of pop out of the bottom of the stack. But that's what I use KeePass for. You know, when I need something that I haven't used in like three or four months and it's dropped off the bottom of the stack. That's always the one that gets me is the password I haven't needed in the last four months. <laughs> right. But there's a big difference between, you know, I have human memorable and unique to the service passphrases for everything. And I occasionally need to remind myself of one of them versus I have no idea what my credentials actually are for anything. And I'm cripplingly dependent on, you know, this, this browser extension. Yeah. I hear a lot of chatter about people moving to Bitwood and apparently it's quite easy to move to that and you can self host it or pay them or whatever. And that seems to be where it's at these days. Yeah. Although, you know, in this typical, you know, the coverless children's have no shoes type thing, I don't actually want something self-hosted, but I kind of do. <laughs> I want something that works well that doesn't involve something janky like rsync to my phone or something. Something that's as easy as LastPass, but without the craziness. For me, that's where KeePass comes in. So um, I, I kind of feel like that's the best of both worlds because I use KeePass. The application itself, you know, I have to unlock my vault, you know, with the, the master passphrase. And um, I just store the the actual binary image on a Google Drive. And so that way I've got access to it on, you know, any computer, phone, tablet, whatever I need to. Um, on mobile where I need the absolute minimum of, you know, hinky crap because of the interface, the Android app will literally just access it directly from the Google Drive. So there's no sync weirdness. It all just works. It's an interesting business decision. Like I, I would have thought they would get further by limiting the number of devices or something. But that might be pretty hard to do with a, a browser type thing anyway. And I guess bifurcating the type, like Jim said, most people's use case is probably one device of each type, not four devices of one type. And that this will get a lot more people to go from free to the $28 a year or whatever. Yeah, and they must have done the math on that, that it's worth it. I mean, if, even if a bunch of their free users leave, what do they care? If 5% of them sign up, then they're still far better off than when they started. It's not just that as of March, you know, they're basically going to kill the utility of the uh, the free tier. I mentioned that you'll be able to choose if you're on free, whether whether you want to use it on mobile or whether you want to use it on a computer, but you can't do both. The really nasty thing uh, wasn't in the original pop-up at all, and I didn't find it in the FAQ entry either. I didn't see it until the tipster forwarded me the actual email that they received tonight which says that uh, 
Beginning March 16th, 2021, LastPass Free will include access on one device type of your choice. The first device you log in with on or after March 16th will set your active device type. So this is not a case of like when you log in, it's going to ask you to make a choice. If you aren't paying attention and you happen to log in, you know, on your phone on March 16th, well, congratulations, your account is now phone only or vice versa if you log in with a computer. Ooh, that is nasty. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a lot of people that get caught completely off guard by this. And uh, I suspect that LogMeIn, who is, you know, that that's who owns LastPass now, I suspect they will, in fact, see a sudden gigantic rush of, you know, $27 purchases. The real question is whether those people that make that panicked $27 buy to get access back to their passwords for right now, will they still be here next year? Or is that you know just going to be what they need to do to get their crap and take it someplace safer? No way. People who pay the 27 bucks will forget about it. They'll mean to move away and then They'll forget about it for a few months. And then maybe as the time approaches, they'll mean to do it again and they won't get around to it. They'll get distracted. And then it'll be, oh, oh, it's 27 bucks. I'll do it next year. And that's what they're counting on. Yeah, the number of businesses that rely on people seeing the line on the credit card bill being like, I should cancel that, but it's not enough money for me to do it right now. I'll do it tomorrow. And then, oh, look, it's been another month and another month or whatever. Exactly. You know, I'll cop to that. Um, I, I signed up for the $5 a month Mozilla VPN like six months ago just so I could, you know, install it and review it. And I still haven't canceled the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> Case in point. Exactly. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, manage Kubernetes, and more. Let us know about the projects you've been using Linode for, and we might mention them on the show. Our website is hosted with Linode, and we're really happy there. So go to linode.com slash two and a half and click on the create free account button to get started. That's linode.com slash two and a half. All right, let's talk about NVIDIA buying ARM. So this was announced last year, NVIDIA's intention to buy ARM, and there were some complaints about it at the time, some objections, but recently Qualcomm has uh, raised very serious objections to this. As well they should. Yeah, this is the ISA and the instruction set. It's a little bit different than... It's different than even just buying the fab or something. It's the company that controls the licensing for everybody else's ARM chips, right? Like if you're Qualcomm and you make your own Qualcomm ARM chips, but you have to license the technology and suddenly it's owned by your competitor instead of this neutral third party, that probably starts to feel like an uncomfortable situation. ARM themselves do not make hardware. They do not sell hardware. Um, they basically just exist to license intellectual property to people who design full working equipment and manufacture it. Being that they don't manufacture or sell hardware themselves, they're in a very neutral position where they don't really have 
a horse in the race to say, hey, we don't want to license our technology to company X because we're competing with them and that would be a conflict. Now, NVIDIA, on the other hand, are very much a hardware design, sales, and manufacture company. So even if NVIDIA doesn't have direct designs right away to, for example, get into the smartphone CPU business, it's not at all hard to imagine them having a very different and much more biased perspective. You know, the next time somebody comes around and says, you know, hey, we want to license some ARM cores and, uh, you know, design a new system on chip to go into a new phone or tablet or a game console or whatever, uh, that could very easily have major business conflicts with NVIDIA's own business model. Yeah, or even just NVIDIA makes a new iteration that's faster and better and decides not to license it to anybody other than NVIDIA. I don't think that that part is necessarily the biggest concern because, I mean, that's not really much of any different than Apple designing, you know, the fastest ARM SOC that's ever existed on the planet and not licensing it to anybody else. I think the the bigger issue is just whether NVIDIA stops developing, you know, the, the base licensable ARM IP at all. And basically, you know, they, they keep iterating, but they don't share any of that with anybody for any purpose and, uh, you know, it ends up being kind of like the the scenarios that, um, you know, open source folks had back in the 2000s when everybody was talking about Microsoft's, you know, embrace, extend, extinguish strategy, where you say, hey, you know, you fork this permissively licensed open source project and you take it in a new direction and you get everybody in the world to use that. And now nobody cares about the old MIT license thing anymore. All they care about is your new proprietary version. It is interesting, especially, you know, uh, ARM is really catching on right now and there's now there's like server grade arm stuff coming and things are looking great and that's why nvidia is interested in it but is nvidia going to end up being a good steward for arm 64 or you know arm going forward or is it more they're like you know now we'll have all of the component now that we've bought melanox for the network interconnect stuff and we have our gpgbu stuff uh, and now we'll have our own custom CPU cores and licenses. We'll be able to make an end-to-end solution and, and basically compete with everyone at once. It's pretty clear why they would want to do this. A lot of NVIDIA's revenue these days is not consumer GPUs. It's, you know, AI, machine learning, supercomputer stuff. And historically, that has depended on their very tight partnership with Intel Xeon, you know, general purpose CPU technology. Which is that partnership is looking a heck of a lot rockier now with, you know, Intel getting more and more serious about its own GPU business. Right now, Intel XE GPUs are not necessarily all that impressive, but they're getting more so. And in particular, when it comes to talking about using their GPUs with machine learning, you also have to look at Intel's big one API initiative, which decouples the machine learning code from the individual GPU hardware it might run on. Right now, NVIDIA has a pretty horrendous lock on GPU accelerated machine learning because almost everybody doing the coding is coding specifically for CUDA cores that, you know, only come in NVIDIA products. But if Intel manages to get one API to catch on, now you get, you know, write once, run anywhere. You don't care which GPU you're running it on. It just works. So if Intel pulls that off and their XE GPUs, you know, keep getting more performant, they don't have a whole lot of need for NVIDIA anymore, which leaves NVIDIA scrambling for their own CPU solution. Yeah. And even just that, the CPU solution you need for some of that machine learning stuff is if all the work's being done on the GPU, the CPU is mostly there just to run the interconnect, right? It's got to route the traffic to between the memory and the GPUs or between the GPU and the network where it's going to store all this data that it's processing. And so 
something lower power and, and higher concurrency like ARM might make more sense and also has more options to extend the instruction set to have whatever special instructions you might need to do things as, as efficiently as possible. Well, you would definitely need to buy ARM to, to extend the instruction set like you're talking about, because you're not going to do that as you're not going to do that until you're the one that actually owns the IP. Um, if ARM continues to hold it, you know, they're, they're not going to approve you just going off and adding your own instructions. This is ARM. It's not RISC-V. Um, I do want to say also, I think you're underplaying the role of the CPU in GPU accelerated machine learning, Alan. Yeah, you need the CPU for the interconnect, but there's also... For most workloads, there there still ends up being some pretty heavy CPU-driven stuff that's part of the workload. Yeah, I was just saying that sometimes to get the good features, like even just SHA-256 offload, you have to buy a gold-type Xeon, not even just a silver uh, or whatever, or platinum. And being able to get a CPU that has the stuff you need and, and not a lot of the excess and be able to get the unit price down means that if you have to fill 20 racks with these things to get the amount of AI stuff you want to do done, then every bit helps. So you're not so much talking about changing the instruction set as being able to redesign the SOC for the CPU itself mm-hmm. and add additional hardware offload. Yeah. Fair. So let's say that you both had to gamble couple thousand dogecoin on the outcome of this what do you think is going to happen are nvidia going to get away with buying arm or not absolutely not not going to happen because of the nature of it there are too many different countries that would have to approve it for it to happen and i think that's what's going to be the big difference to quote our former president the united states of america china (laughs) i can see china being worried that oh if it's owned by nvidia now then they might try to block Huawei from having arm cores and so on Whereas when it's in the UK, it's maybe slightly different. To be clear, the they there is the United States government, not NVIDIA themselves. Right, yes. ARM is based in the UK. NVIDIA is a United States company. And uh, China has already seen some pretty heavy-handed U.S. regulation of what our Trump administration considered, quote, U.S. technology, unquote, and banning the use of it in its political opponents. Yeah. And separately, the UK itself has its own political ideas about letting ARM go to not be based in the UK. Well, that's the thing that ARM's owned by SoftBank, right? Which is a Japanese company. It might be based, the offices might be in the UK. Well, so when SoftBank bought ARM, they had to meet a whole long list of UK requirements, including keeping at least X thousand people employed in the UK, making sure this and that specific things happened in the UK. Hmm. And I imagine they would try to attach similar writers to an NVIDIA thing. But I don't know how interested they are in having it actually change hands again. Even if NVIDIA was okay with the exact same set of writers and be like, ah, okay, we can own it, but you know, we got to put a ton of business in the United Kingdom. I don't think that would placate China in the least. I mean, you know, China has seen, again, the Trump administration say, you know, you can't have any more Android because, you know, Google's our company and it's our technology. And so, you know, screw you. And came very close to killing a couple of, you know, large phone manufacturers in China because of that. I can't imagine the Chinese government is going to be excited about the idea that that might get repeated with the hardware this time. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and use the code admins to upgrade and get 50% off a year's subscription to a new DevOps training site called Learned. 
The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code, and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this offer by visiting automation.link and upgrade with 50% off with the code ADMINS. That's automation.link and the code ADMINS. Let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, the best way is email show at 2.5admins.com. And thank you everyone who is supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's really appreciated. If you want to join those people, go to 2.5admins.com slash support and you'll find links there and remember for five dollars or more per month on patreon you can get an advert free rss feed so check it out so the first one then boss jan i think that's how you say it writes to us i have a little bit of a different question about backups who or what is a backup of you if you get hit by a bus or in lockdown time fall down from the couch and get injured so you end up in a coma for a couple of months who can take care of all your it cattle Who knows all the quirks of your IT infrastructure and who has access to the keys? I'd love to hear your personal best practices and if you know other companies' policies that have this kind of backup. This is basically one of those things that you you definitely have to have a policy, but there's a lot of different approaches. And there's pros and cons to everything. You know, if you have a delegated fallback for, you know, if you step in front of a bus, that's also a big potential security risk. I ended up personally making the decision that, you know, my fallback policy is all of the passwords that I know that my clients don't know, they're local and on the hardware. And basically you can just boot into safe mode and reset the root password. And I have instructed my clients on that and said, what you need is a competent Linux consultant. And my suggestion to them, which they haven't always taken, has been, you actually shouldn't ask me for that root password for that consultant to use. That's your first litmus test as to like, is this potentially a good replacement for Jim? If it takes them longer than 10 minutes to get into this system they have physical access to, then that's not a good fit. You need to call the next guy in the phone book. Yeah. Uh, so there's a bunch of different approaches. For example, in the sysadmin team for the freebsd.org cluster itself, there's a shared secret file that's encrypted with uh, kind of a SSSS type thing. Uh, so key sharing. So there's two files. There's one where anybody with a key that's part of the group can decrypt it and get things like the console password for the servers to fix it if it doesn't work or whatever. And then there's the, the super secrets. And that one requires any three of the eight people, uh, to agree to unlock it. And then you can get read the secrets. So you can have systems like that where either There's an encrypted thing somewhere and any one of the people can access it. Or you can have a system where, you know, any N of M people together can construct enough of the key to decrypt it and be able to access the information. Sometimes that is, hey, at our company, uh, my business partner just happens to have access to everything I do just in case I'm not around. Uh, Or another one where it's like, if two or three of the people from the team agree that they need this, then they can unlock it and get it even if I'm not around. It's become more of a thing to, uh, you know, as part of your living will or, or final will to have some instructions about what to deal with your online stuff and whether that's, you know, here's the master password for my key pass that will unlock all the passwords to get you into the things. Because, uh, you know, if I'm dead or incapacitated, then I don't need them anymore. For me, it was like, here's a list of people you need to notify 
so that I don't just disappear off the internet. People actually know that what happened to me. Okay, Dominic wrote to us, I decided it's time to roll my own cloud on my home server. The problem is that my home internet connection has a slowish upload speed, so while access at home would be quick, access on the go would still be slow by default. I'm planning to use Nextcloud in Docker on my home server and proxy external access to it via a web server running on my VPS. Both systems communicate via WireGuard and both internal and external access runs off the same domain transparently. What I want to achieve is to cache resources on my VPS so external access to my data doesn't get bottlenecked by my home connection upload bandwidth. At the same time, I want a solid solution with an Android app that will do automatic camera upload. Integration into external storage as well as easy and secure sharing options with other users and strangers on the internet would be a big bonus but aren't strictly required. Are there viable alternatives to Nextcloud in the light of those requirements? Or do you see an alternative combining several solutions to get the same results? The short answer to this is yeah, no. I, I don't think that this product or you know some mishmash of products together is going to get you what you really want, which is storage that actually lives on your home computer but is you know magically cached to internet speed by your VPS out in the cloud. I don't think that's going to be a thing. Uh, I think that your true choices here are either you choose to have your next cloud instance on your LAN and you've got lightning quick access on the LAN, but it's slow everywhere else, or you choose to cloud host it and you deal with it being the same speed from everywhere, including from your local network. Yeah. With caching, you have a number of different problems. Like if you try to do just regular HTTP cache, like with Nginx on the VPS, the files are only going to be fast for files you've already accessed once. And so if it's if it was slow, if it's fast tomorrow because you access it today, that's not really that helpful because you're not likely to pull the same file twice anyway. And then if you're trying to do some kind of replication or something, then you don't want to be modifying both sides, you know, and that's kind of the point of something like own cloud, next cloud, whatever. And so it just gets messy and then you know, or you have invalidation problems where you, you update a file, but the cached copy on the VPS doesn't notice that you changed that file because you did it at home. And now the VPS gives you the old copy and you've lost some of your changes and it gets very confusing, especially with things like calendars. Well, this is supposed to be fixed by federation and that you can federate two servers together. But I think that the theory here is very nice, but from my experience of using a system, I didn't set it up, but it was set up. It didn't work flawlessly 100% of the time, and I think that is the issue. If it doesn't work 100% of the time, it doesn't work. Right, and the other point is, I, I'm assuming by the talk of caching here, they don't want the VPS to have a copy of everything, just the things that you're using. And you know, if it can't predict that, which it can't, then it's never going to have the right things anyway. And, you know, paying to have a second copy in the cloud, you know, as a backup or whatever, maybe makes sense. But for active access, you know, it gets much more complicated. Distributed computing is hard. There's your pull quote right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny that Justin recently wrote to us about own cloud infinite scale, which he thinks is much faster than NextCloud in his testing. So it may be worth giving that a try. But yeah, I, I think, yeah, selective caching and predictive caching, I mean, that... It's impossible, surely. We don't have that technology yet. Maybe with the right AI one day, but right now, yeah, that seems a bit far-fetched. Yeah. I, I saw the email about the infinite scale thing. I was a little curious about the, the benchmark or whatever they were using there. It's like copying a whole bunch of files is generally going to take a couple of seconds just because 
it's a number of separate operations, but I don't see how you could get, you know, a 15x improvement that easily. You know, either the files are very small and sure they all uploaded or own cloud lied about how long it took to upload. So we brought up federation of servers and this idea that you just upload once and, you know, the change is made everywhere and everything's just smooth and awesome and easy peasy. When you look at own cloud's infinite scale landing page, you know, it says it scales database listen, multi-threading own cloud, infinite scale 1.1.0 is already 10 times faster as the classic own cloud. No matter whether on a raspberry Pi in your basement or in a geo distributed setup for a hundred thousand users with millions of small files, own cloud infinite scale runs smoothly at the least cynical interpretation of that. I would just like to point out that at no point did they say that setting up the geo distributed setup for a hundred thousand users would be as simple as setting up the single raspberry Pi within the amount of engineering effort and maintenance effort that we can reasonably expect for, you know, this, this one listener who wants to set up his thing, both at home and in the cloud. I, I don't think that's all going to add up to something workable. Is the elephant in the room here just use Dropbox? I can't answer that because we don't know exactly what our listener wants to use OwnCloud for. I mean, he might just be using it as a literal Dropbox substitute, or he, he could be using it for all sorts of different things. And Dropbox doesn't really necessarily give you the option of make it really fast on my LAN and not stupid slow off my LAN. It does. My understanding is it does. If you've got the clients on two machines on your LAN, it will sync across the LAN rather than across the internet. It's smart like that. Right, but that requires keeping a copy of all the files on every machine that's running Dropbox. That's what Dropbox does. All the files that you want to have synced. You just set it up with the relevant directories or whatever. I can also tell you from bitter, bitter experience that it doesn't always work that way. You will very frequently see, you know, one user in a small business decide that they need to upload 50 gigs of raw photos from a camera after some weekend exhibition. (laughs) And all of a sudden, all 50 gigs worth of things start downloading to 100 other computers in the building simultaneously from the cloud. Right. Fair enough. All right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send your questions in. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.